Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you because your word tells us everything we need to know. Lord, most importantly, it tells us about you and it tells us about us. And Lord, we see when we look at those two distinct, different situations, we see the gulf, the the gap between the two of us. Lord, we realize that you are holy, that we are not holy. That you are an awesome God who is limitless, who is faithful. Lord, we are finite and Lord, we are so often unfaithful. But Lord, as we study your word this morning, I pray you stir our hearts. Give us, Lord, insight into things that maybe we've not considered or understood before. And Father, as we leave here today, may we just go wanting more of you in our lives, loving you more. Uh, So Father, we just give you this time. Give us ears that are open and Lord, hearts that are ready to receive. Uh, Lord, just bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do what I did last week to start with and just, just take us through First Corinthians. I want to unpack this a bit more in detail next week. Um, but let's just, just read First Corinthians chapter 13, starting at the first verse. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith... So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, last week we started just looking at this whole aspect, the whole concept of love uh, from a scriptural perspective. Um, We looked last week really very much at God's, the Father's love for us. And it's kind of something we're aware of, we're familiar with, but we probably don't really think about it very much. Uh, We don't tend to think just how much God the Father loves us. This morning we're going to go on and look at our response our love for the Father, and then next week we're going to conclude and look at our love for one another. And we're going to see that each of these is a a progression, that um, our love for one another will actually come out of our love for the Father. If you don't love the Father, then you won't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't have any love for the Father, it's because you've not come to that place of understanding his love for you. Because when you come to the place of understanding the incredible love that God the Father has for you, that will naturally bring about the response of your love for the Father and, again, your love for one another. We said last week as well that we're not just dealing here with um, kind of some emotional response um, from a worldly perspective. The world thinks it understands love and talks about love so much and so much of our media and tv and magazines and so on you know are filled with things that the world thinks is love but of course we know it's so far removed and we're talking about something here that is supernatural Uh, the bible says that god is love and we're seeing here that we we can't just make a decision a determined effort we can't make a new year's resolution to love one another or to love god or you know this is something that is of god you know, there's um, if you look in any book uh, on systematic theology, that's simply a, a breakdown of the major elements of our faith. 
And numerous um, uh, people in the past have done this. And you, if you go to a Bible cemetery, sorry, seminary, um, if, if you go to those places, they'll typically take you through a systematic theology. And they'll talk about the various aspects. They'll talk about salvation. They'll talk about God. They'll talk about angels. They'll talk about all various elements uh, that we find you know, that make up the Christian faith. And they talk about various attributes of God. Now, there's some attributes of God that we can't understand. Uh, They're the incommunicable attributes of God. Um, So things like God's omnipotence. Um, You know, God is all-powerful. God is omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent. God is everywhere. I mean, those are things that we can't experience because they are uniquely God. But then there's other characteristics of God that are communicated to us through his word. And love is one of those things. You see, God is love. You know, God doesn't just love. God is love. Um, the very source of love itself. And it's something that God has communicated to us. And what we'll see and what we have seen is that God has shown us in his word how he has communicated that love to us. And then, obviously, that brings us to the point of talking about our response. And last week we were looking, of course, the the love that the Father had in sending his own son, and so on. So let's kind of pick up from from where we left off and and just look now at our response to God the Father's incredible love for us, which is really our response. Now, in a sense, this is quite easy, because we're actually given some real instructions in Scripture. Uh, Let's start in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 35 onwards, we get a situation. Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees, and they've been trying to trick him and test him with hard questions and so on. And one of them, uh, which we're told was a lawyer. Now, that's not a lawyer such as we are familiar with today. Um, Very often people don't uh, like legal representatives and lawyers. They can be problems, and uh, they can be... uh, very, very uh, uh, well paid and uh, not very helpful sometimes in people's experience. Uh, no further comments needed. But um, lawyers uh, today are not the same as we read of in Scripture. In Scripture, the lawyers that we're looking at there were people who were experts in the law, the law of Moses. So these are scribes, uh, for want of a better expression. Um, people that understood the law that God had given to Moses and then had become the, 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 the backbone, really, of the Jewish nation. So one of these experts in the law comes to Jesus and asks him a question. And we're told he asked him a question, tempting him. So the whole point of this is to try and trip Jesus up. And the question is simply this. Master, or rabbi uh, is the the idea, uh, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, clearly the intention was, this will be a tough one. Because the Jews have broken the law down into 613 commandments. So we have the Ten Commandments we're familiar with, but the Jews have then gone on and broken it down. They said there's 613 commandments that they've kind of codified and have. And, of course, the question is, Jesus, which one of these is the greatest? What's the most important one? Well, Jesus doesn't hesitate in his response. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment, or great commandment. Uh, in Matthew, sorry, Mark's gospel, Mark adds strength. So you love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and strength. And of course, there's no contradiction. It's not that one missed something out. The whole idea is it's just giving God our whole being. Uh, and that's how we should love God. So we're told straight away how we should love God. It should be quite simply with our whole being. But interestingly, Jesus quotes this particular scripture. He goes on to say that the second commandment is just like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what Jesus does in this brief answer is give a summary of the two tablets of the law, the law of uh, Moses or the law that was given to Moses. Um, We know typically as the Ten Commandments. But the first quote that Jesus uh, gives us is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. The second, loving your neighbor as yourself, is drawn from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And we see that with the Ten Commandments, they're broken down into those two categories. The first four commandments, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any idols, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath day, they all have to do with our relationship to God. 
And so that's the first uh, element of the, the law. That's the first thing that Jesus says uh, is the, or the, the principal commandment, the, the most important one. But then the second part of that, the second section of the Ten Commandments from 5 to 10, so honoring your father and mother, not killing, not committing adultery, not stealing, uh, not bearing false witness, which we've kind of translated as don't lie, but actually bearing false witness has a bigger connotation than just lying. Um, and you shall not cover it. All of those ideas really fall under our attitude and actions towards other people. So this is how the, the law is broken down. This is how the Jews typically see it. And Jesus himself clearly breaks the law down, uh, the Ten Commandments, which in a sense are the summary of the law, into these two distinct categories. <coughs> now, in Exodus 20, which is where we find these uh, commandments listed for us, uh, as Moses goes up to God on Mount Sinai. Moses, you must have been fit. Uh, some of you, if you're reading through your, your Bibles this year, not quite sure how far you've got, but if you've got to, to Exodus, and you get to the stage where you see that God is talking to Moses, and he says, go down and tell the people this. And he goes down and tells the people, and he said, one of the things is, don't come close to the mountain. And then Moses goes back up, Lord, I've done that. He says, right. Now, he said, go down there, and when you've gone down, when you come back up, and Moses is up and down and up and down. He must have been incredibly fit. Um, but uh, we, one of the, the final times that Moses comes up to the mountain, he's there before the Lord, and the Lord then gives him these tablets of stone. And the first of the commandments that we have is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this is a part of that which Jesus says is the great commandment, and really speaks of how we should love God. So the thing just to highlight here, that you shall have no other gods before me. Um, the Hebrew word is simply al, it means besides me. Um, it's interesting, it's really, you should have no other gods in my presence. So it's not suggesting, as some people may um, wrongly perceive, that God is saying, you can have other gods, but I must be the first one. Um, there mustn't be anybody in front of me. No, God is saying there mustn't be any other gods in my presence. Now just think about that. Because Jesus is saying, really, our love for God is based around these particular group of commandments and the first thing is that we shouldn't have any other gods in god's presence whatsoever now that should start to make us think a little bit it's really let there not be to the other gods that's really what it's saying this is how kyle and dillich translate they say literally beyond me or in addition to me or equivalent to me there should be nothing that draws our time or our attention or our focus like god there shouldn't be anything that even competes with now the problem is, in our lives, that's not the way it is. Because we all have things that compete with God. Whether we've intentionally done that, whether we've allowed those things, or whether just through living life uh, we've ended up in that situation. John Wesley uh, made this comment. Uh, he said, the first commandment is concerning the object of our worship, Jehovah, and him only. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Egyptians and other neighbouring nations had many gods creatures of their own fancy and this law was prefixed because of that transgression and jehovah being the god of israel they must entirely cleave to him and no other either of their own invention or borrowed from their neighbors the sin against this commandment which we are most in danger of is giving that glory to any creature which is due to god only now we may think that we're not guilty of that but i would challenge us in a minute and i think we'll find we are John Wesley goes on and says, Pride makes a god of ourselves. Covetousness makes a god of money. Sensuality makes a god of the belly. Whatever is love, feared, delighted in, or depended on more than God, that we make a god of. This prohibition includes a precept which is, foundation, which is the foundation of the whole law, uh, that we take the Lord uh, for our God, accept him for ours. Adore him with humble reverence and set our affections entirely upon him. Now, let's just back up a minute. The whole subject we're looking at here this morning is our love for God. And already we see that this is actually quite demanding in a sense. What God is asking of us, that we give ourselves entirely and wholly over to him. That's the way that we should love God. And... It should spring from realizing what God has done for us, and it will then lead on to how we love each other. Now, one of the problems that we'll talk about next week is the fact that we don't 
truly love each other. At least maybe at times we do, but generally, and certainly the church at large, has a very poor record in terms of its love for each other. And part of the problem is we don't truly love God. <clears throat> See, loving God is not a kind of superficial emotion. It requires our whole person being united in obedience and worship to him. Now, I didn't know what verse Jared was going to pick uh, for verse of the week. Um, but I just smiled last night when I just checked the email and I saw it come through and I put it on the slides. You know, Jared has already highlighted the importance of obedience and that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. But, you know, all through scripture this theme is there uh, and we'll try and unpack it a little more in a moment. Psalm 96 says there, for the Lord is great, he's greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. Those are nothing. But the Lord made the heavens. What a contrast. We serve the God who made the heavens, the God who created everything. Anything else is purely an invention of man. It's an idol. It's not a real entity in itself. It has no power, no ability. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he's pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusts in them. It's an interesting scripture. We were just chatting the other day. It's, it's interesting, you know, we, we sometimes have this concept in our society, um, and even I, I've been guilty of this. When I talk to the Muslims who I work with, who obviously worship their God, and, and we've had this conversation about the fact that the God of the Bible is not the, the God of the Quran. Very, very different. We talked last time about love being a very key element of that. Um, but we sometimes think that it's about our God versus their God. And maybe when we debate with other religions or people of other faiths, whatever, it, it can almost seem like we're, we know, which God is a better God. There's no contest. There's only one God. There is only one God. There is the God who made the heavens, and then there's anything else is just a created man-made fiction. You know, and the Bible has been proven to be true in so many areas, in so many aspects throughout the history of the world. You know, as we said before, how many critics' hammers have been blunted on the anvil of God's word. You see, all the gods of the nations, they are but idols. You know, even Allah was uh, this, the moon god originally. And there was 360 gods and Muhammad happened to pick this one god and it became the god that he chose to worship and so on. You know, but just an idol made by man's hands. You know, and even the sun and the moon, which other nations have worshipped in, in the past and so on, certainly the Egyptians reverence those things. You know, they're created things. They'll burn up one day. They're not eternal. They can't go on forever. But our God is eternal. Our God is outside of time. We're told in Isaiah that our God inhabits eternity. Now, it's easy when we talk about gods in that sense and religion, but what about the, the things that we allow to become gods in our own life? I thought this quote was quite interesting by Jeremy Rifkin. It's just simply, clearly not a Christian comment, but we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world, and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior. For we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves. For we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Now, isn't that a great comment on man's perception of things now? You know, very much as a result of people like Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin and so on, and many, many others. You know, we've now got a world that really is totally independent of God. They feel they don't need God for anything. And therefore, we kind of make the rules. Now, the problem we have, even as Christians, we still are influenced to some degree by the worldly mindsets. And we still think that we have a right to this or a right to that or whatever. 
You know, and uh, that kind of comment at the beginning. You know, we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home. You know what? We are guests in someone else's home. This is God's world. He created it. He created us. And he's given us this world. Originally, Adam and Eve put in the garden to tend the garden, to do a job for God. You know, whatever we've been given, we've been given by God. All things are of God. All things come from God. It's of his own that we give him. We're reading Chronicles. David makes his wonderful prayer. We mentioned this last time, I think. So again, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, God is a jealous God. God alone wants to be the object of our worship. In Exodus 34, verse 14, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 to 24, we read there, Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which was made with you, and make you a graven image, or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And the problem is, even with these scriptures, it's so easy to kind of think back to how it was as Israel were in the wilderness. We think of the golden calf, we think of those kind of things. And of course, we're so much better than that. We'd never do that, would we? But the reality is we do those things, but in far more subtle ways. And then we convince ourselves that we're not doing it at all. Now, what is it that we love? What is it that we worship? You know, all sorts of things can come into this. I mean, our hobbies... Sometimes it's not wrong to have a hobby. It's not wrong to have something that you enjoy doing for rest and relaxation or whatever. But sometimes those things get put in the way of God. You know, how many believers that would say they love God would choose not to come to church on Sunday so that they could go and pursue their hobby every now and again? You know, how many times do those hobbies get in the way of reading God's word, spending time with him? How many hours have we spent over the last year involved in our hobbies? And compare that with how much time we've spent on our knees. Or how much time we've spent reading God's word. And so now ask the question again, do we really love God? You know, the things that we're passionate about. You know, it's interesting you talk to people and you can have all sorts of conversations. And suddenly you can mention something and you just you press that button, don't you? And people just go. And, and there's all, everybody has something that, that they get passionate about, uh, depending on the kind of conversations we're having. And, you know, but that should be God. The thing that should really excite us is when we have opportunity to talk about God. When anybody challenges our faith, it should almost be like, you know, suddenly the go button's pressed and that's it, we're off. You know, people used to use the various expressions talking about Christians and talk about you know Jesus freaks and, and so on it's certainly a, a label that I got labelled with at school you know I never minded that I was always quite quite pleased that, that people could see that there was something in my life that was different than, than the average people at school but what are we passionate about what is it that excites us you know it could be all sorts of things you know TV dramas or you know, strictly come dancing or football or whatever else. There's all sorts of things. But I was passionate about God. You know, when you talk to somebody about those things that you're passionate about, you're excited. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to, to have passions and stuff like that. But when we talk God should be absolutely number one here. And again, we're not to have any other gods in his presence. So how do we react to these things? Self, of course, is one of the biggest problems we have. You know, and we all say that, you know, oh, I, I, you know, I don't really you know, like myself and you know, things like that and, you know, don't care about myself or whatever we, we kind of comment. But, you know, if we took a, a picture of the church this morning and next week I put the photograph up on the screen, I guarantee you who you'd look for first. You'd all be looking for yourself. And you'd all be saying, oh, I don't look very good. I don't, I don't know. You wouldn't be thinking about everybody else. You'd just be thinking about yourself. You know, and you'll say, oh, well, you know, I don't like myself, I'm a little overweight. You know, if you didn't like yourself, you'd be glad you're a little overweight. You know, and I don't like myself, I don't look very good. Well, you'd be glad you don't look very good if you didn't like yourself. No, the truth is, we do like ourselves. The problem is, we like ourselves often way too much. And, you know, again, how much time do we spend on our, our physical frame, uh, on the way we look, our appearance, or whatever else, on shopping for, for clothes? And how much time do we spend for God? 
And then material possessions, another big area for us, you know. And none of these things in themselves are wrong, but it's getting the context. It's understanding that God deserves our utmost. He deserves our absolute love and adoration and worship. And But so often those material possessions become so, so important to us, don't they? You know, I wonder what's going to happen when we start to get to the the real earthquakes and the famines and the wars and the pestilences that are spoken of uh, by Jesus in Matthew 24. You know, we see glimpses now, but we haven't seen even even a fraction of that. You know, but when we get to that time, when suddenly, you know, there's houses falling down because of earthquakes, how much will those material possessions really mean to us? You know, how many people at that point will be crying out for a saviour? You know, you think of even the Twin Towers, you know, there were a lot of people going to work that day who had very important things to do. You know, a lot of people have probably told their husband or their wife, you know, I'm going to be late home. I've got a really important job today. You know, I've got to get this contract sent or I've got to do this. By 10 o'clock that morning, none of those things mattered. And there's lots of people crying out for God. You know, so his understanding, the, 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 how frail our lives are. You know, David speaks of our lives being like a vapor. And we've got to get this in context. The problem is, it's not just those things that we may choose. There's other things that we're kind of forced sometimes to worship. And sometimes we end up kind of almost fearing those things. Um, It could be a job, it could be a career, it could be the fact that we have to pay bills, don't we? You know, our circumstances, all those kind of things together so often become areas in our lives that we have to devote the time to because. And we can put up a great argument for all of those things. But really, when it comes down to it, God is more important than any of those things. And God is more than an answer to any of the problems that we experience or we face. We'll look at the scripture in a moment and talk a bit further, but First John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. But it's talking about a perfect love toward God that will cast out fear. First Timothy 6 verse 10, just there, it talks there of the love of money being the root of all evil. Money's not evil. Money's not a problem in and of itself. God ordains uh, in scripture a system of ownership of property and so on. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with owning things. But the love of money... You know, the desire to accumulate wealth for some status symbol, just to obtain what you want, for pleasure, for whatever else. All of those things, that's the root of all evil. Paul says, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. So he's talking about believers. You know, isn't it you know, often the case that we tend to think of that verse in context of the world? You know, the world is into its money and finance and all that kind of stuff, and we, we, we're okay, we don't, we don't get deceived by those things. Paul is saying here, you know, that even believers, some have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, uh, it's interesting, we're talking a Bible study on Thursday evening looking at first, uh, sorry, looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And as I shared my understanding of that portion, is speaking of the problems, the thorns, the briars that we allow into our lives if we don't yield to God in particular areas. And I think this is one of them. This is one of the areas of of your life that you can choose to put your money first, put the things of this life, the, the needs, financial needs and so on, put them before God. But if you do that, then it will bring forth those thorns and those briars and so on. You won't bear fruit in that particular area of your life. We're told in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no man can serve two masters. And notice the, the wording here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold on to one and despise the other. <clears throat> you cannot serve God and mammon. I was reading, and some of you probably have seen it before, but just during the week, that if Jesus came to your house, a uh, little kind of poem thing. And it's just the question, you know, if Jesus were to come to your house today, what would you have to do? You know, are there things you'd have to put out the way and hide? You know, you're, you're updating from the poem, which was written some time ago. But, you know, would you have to hide some of your DVDs? Would you have to move some magazines out of the way? Or, you know, would you have to, you know, turn the telly off or delete some things that you've got stored? You know, how would you respond? Would you, you know, 
cancel some of your friends coming around to see you because you wouldn't want Jesus to meet those particular people. Or, and this is kind of the, the ideas that the poem's put forward. Um, you know, how would we respond? At the end of the poem, he kind of goes on to say, would you be glad when he'd gone? And I just thought, wow, that's kind of... Because sometimes we, we put on a brave face, we come to church, we you know, do the I love God thing. But actually sometimes, oh, I'm glad that's over. Get back to normal now. Get back to what I was doing. You know, and is it like that for us sometimes? Do we actually really love God? Do we get home and just think, oh, I can't wait till next Sunday. can't wait to get back with God's feet, people fellowshipping again. You know, when you're going through your week, do you long to have a conversation with another Christian so you can talk about God? Or do you feel a little awkward when you're put next to another Christian because they might ask you how things are going? That verse we mentioned a moment ago, 1 John 4.18, says, There is no fear in love. You know, if we truly love God, we won't be fearful. We would be absolutely delighted if Jesus were to walk in now. You know, none of us are going to be perfect at the time he comes for us in our own sense. You know, yes, of course, our sin has been washed away. We understand that. But we know we still sin. And John makes that very clear. That, you know, if we say we've not sinned, we're deceiving ourselves. But are there things in your life that you're trying to censor? Could be attitudes. Could be bitterness. Could be some hatred, resentment, all sorts of things. You know, it doesn't have to be just physical things. It could be lust, it could be all sorts of, you know. But there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. You know, the reason we fear things is because our relationship with God is not what it should be. You know, and that can be on any level. Any fear that we kind of go through and experience well, love is the, the solution. It's been said before that if we fear God, we'll fear nothing else. And I think that's true. It's, you know, fearing God is not that kind of fear of a tyrant ruling. It's just a, a, a reverence and respect of who God is. And if we fear God in that way, then we won't fear anything else. The quotes, I mean, I've used these before, and I just love these quotes from Oswald Chambers. He says, suppose God is the God you know him to be when you are nearest to him. What an impertinence worry is. I love that quote, because it just strikes at the heart of so many of the problems we, we make for ourselves. You know, just think for a moment about some experience in your life when you have seen God move or work in an incredible way. It may be the moment you came to know him. It may be some answer to prayer that you saw. It could have been at some event, maybe we were having a time of fellowship or worship or something or a sermon, and you just felt so close to God and there were no problems in the world in anything. Well, that is the God that we serve. It's the God that rolled back the waters of the Red Sea to allow Moses and the children of Israel to flee to safety. It's the God that provided the water in the desert for them when they were thirsty. It's the God that empowered a young David to go and confront a Philistine. None of those people were in that place of worrying. They just trusted God. It's the same God that led Daniel to boldly go before a king that was about to behead and kill all of the wise men of the realm and say, I can give you an answer to your dream. It's the same God that emboldened those three Hebrews, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, to go before that same king, before Nebuchadnezzar, and say, whatever you say, king, that's fine. You do what you want. We trust God. And that's the God we serve. So so suppose God is the God you know him to be when you're nearest to him. It's crazy that we ever worry. Yeah, we... we, (laughs) As this other, the second quote there says, Worry is evidence that the ruling disposition of a person's life is not God. Now that should be a challenge for all of us because, hey, we're there, all of us. I don't think there's a single person in this room that could put their hand up and say, well, I don't, I don't worry. Worry is evidence that the ruling disposition of a person's life is not God. <clears throat> the 
Westminster Confession, 1646, uh, in that there's this little bit which I just think is great. Again, speaking of this, this portion of the, the commandments, the, the, the first commandment specifically, uh, and about our relationship with God. It says the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God. We're okay with that. But then he goes on and says, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he's offended and walking humbly with him. Wow. I think we're starting to understand what our love to God should look like. Psalm 31 reminds us that it's a duty of us as believers. It says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful. Even in this, God is already bringing, bringing blessing and protection. And, but love the Lord, oh you his saints. It's not optional. This is what we're required. But then, of course, we understand, we said earlier, that it's not just a New Year's resolution. It's not just a determined effort on our part. We're told, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. You see, if we just did this morning, we hadn't done last week, it would have been a bit harder to try and you know, get all these things in our heads. But last week we were just looking at the incredible love that God has for us. You know, we could spend weeks going through the exceedingly great and precious promises in his word. And we just come to the conclusion that he loves us so much. And the reason... We can do everything that was in that long list we just looked at from the Westminster Confession. Everything that's there. The reason that can be the way we love God is because he first loved us. He's loved us so much. It makes it easy for us to love him in return. Again, this verse that Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind. It's the first and the greatest commandment. You know, the heart is the emotional part of us. The heart, we're told by in Jeremiah, is, is deceitful. But once we are born again, a new heart is put in us. God speaks to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel about their heart of stone and the fact that there will come a day when that heart of stone is replaced with a fleshly heart. We're not talking about the organ that beats within us specifically. We're talking about the, the heart, our emotional uh, seat in our lives. In contrast, we've got the soul... Well, the soul really is a, a bigger element. The, the Bible speaks that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now, the spirit's not really the problem, because the spirit is the, our God consciousness. Some people even liken the spirit to our consciousness. The fact that it reminds us when we're wrong. A lot of people haven't checked in with their conscience for some time. You know, and partly because it always tells them things they don't want to hear. But our soul really comprises of our heart and our spirit. But the spirit is again, when we are born again, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive God's spirit. We're in a better condition than we were, Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Adam had his own spirit. We've been given God's Holy Spirit. So we're to love God with all our heart. Every element, all the emotion that we have, all the passion that we have. With all our soul. And that would include our mind. Because the mind is the intellectual part of us. So really, the soul is in the center, and you've got our heart and our mind. You've got the, 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 the passionate part of our being, and then the intellectual part. You know, we mentioned on, uh, I think it was on Thursday, uh, we looked at just the verse, let me just read it to you from, um, from the book of Romans. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10. It says that if you will confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus that, and, and, and shall believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That speaks of how somebody is saved. It's with the heart and with the mind. Because the heart is that believing in the heart, but the confession with the mouth is an intellectual decision. Unless you've confessed with your mouth, unless you've believed in your heart, that God has raised up Jesus from the dead. And of course, within that comes the whole reason why Jesus died in the first place, that he died for our sins, which necessitates, necessitates our repentance as well. But all of that combined, without that we can't be saved. But we're told then, again, that we should love the Lord thy God. Isn't that a special word as well? You know, I know this is on the Ten Commandments given to the Jews, but we should love the Lord thy God. This is your God. It's a kind of personal, precious treasure. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Again, every ounce of our being. First John 2 verse 4 and 5. He that said, I know him and keeps not his commandment is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Now, we start to move on to the how do we do this stuff. Okay, we've seen what we should do, what our attitude, what our response to God should be like. So the question is, how do we do it? Well, we're told very clearly, we keep his commandments. You know, we can't say we know God, we can't say we love God, and then not keep his commandments. Now, we're not keeping 613 Jewish commandments that were written down in the Torah. That's not all we're keeping. But we're keeping those things that God would lay upon our hearts. We'll talk more in a moment. Notice, first of all here, that the word is essential if we're to love God. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. If you want to love God, you ain't going to do it unless you start reading his word, unless you start understanding his word, allowing his word to impact your thinking. To really love God, you cannot be divorced from God's word. It's essential. <clears throat> We're told in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, really, this is just telling us what the first commandment says. You know, that we should have no other gods in his presence. You know, if we want to love the world or the things in the world, fine, go at it, that's fine. There's no prohibition in that sense other than the fact that you cannot then claim that you love God as well. And you'll end up, if you are a Christian and you go and love the world and the things in the world, you'll end up as a miserable Christian. Because you'll end up with those thorns and the briars, again, I believe that Hebrews 6 talks about, and various other portions of Scripture confirm that, you know, if you want at the world, if you want to enjoy the, the so-called pleasures of sin for a season, it will make you miserable. But Jesus said he came to give us life in abundance. That's how we should be living. Our life should be just so overflowing with joy that we should bump into people and it just overflows. So we've got a simple do and a don't here. It's do love the word of God. Don't love the world. Very simple. I went through a stage during last year and um, I used to pick up the, the metro uh, in the morning, the newspaper. Uh, it's always on the platforms at the station. Uh, and I just have kind of a quick flick through uh, and kind of day after day and week after week, I was like, oh, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Now I don't pick it up. Partly because it's never going to tell me anything I need to know. But now, I just use that time to read my Bible. It's far more profitable. and I, I, It's a much better start to the day. I mean, I, I, before I leave the home, I always try and read something anyway. But when I get to that platform, and I'm sitting waiting for a train, and very often when it's cold and wet and windy, the train's always delayed. Why is that? Have you ever noticed? But rather than reading this, this worldly views and opinions and things that really don't matter anyway, Spend time in God's word. But that's one example. That's the way that one thing that God convicted me of last year. And, you know, but for all of us, you know, what are the elements that you would, if you looked at it, and be honest, you said, actually, no, probably I do love the world in that particular area, and I'm not really loving the word. 
Always put God first. Matthew 7, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be sorted out. My paraphrase of that verse. We're then told in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God. Now, we're going to elaborate on this next week. We're told, when we love God. Now, see again how this all builds one on another. When we love God and keep his commandments. Now, working backwards from that, the evidence that we love God is that we keep his commandments. And if we keep his commandments and love God, then we will love the children of God. It's a very simple formula that God has given. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. You know, in essence, what God says is, don't drink poison. I won't do you any good. And we go, oh, okay. But that's it. God is saying, I don't want you to take anything into your life that's going to hurt you. Because he loves us so much. And so often we go, oh, but can't I try? You know, we were out yesterday, and um, I've been very, very good the last week and a bit. Joy bought me a juicer for Christmas. I know some of you are already getting fed up with me talking about my juicer, but I've had more fruit in the last 10 days than I've had in the last 10 years. Uh, it's great. So if, when you come around, I'm going to make you something out of real fruit. It's brilliant, fantastic. But I backstayed a little bit at lunchtime yesterday. And I had, um, we actually had a, a Subway for lunch, which has kind of got fruit and well, not vegetable stuff and things as well. But I, I actually went then because I was still a little bit hungry and I just got some KFC popcorn. I don't know if you've ever had some KFC popcorn. It's quite nice. So. And Marla said, could she have some? And I thought, yeah, she might. So she might like it. So I gave her some. And Amita said, can I have some? I said, you won't like it. She said, oh, but I will. And it's kind of, it's got quite spicy. And I said, no, Amita, you really won't like it. I will like it. I really will. And I had to remind her of a number of things recently that, that she said this. No, I really want it. And then I've let her have it, and she really didn't like it. So, but we're like that, aren't we? God says, you're not going to like this. It's not going to do you good. Oh, no, no, really, I will like it. It's going to be good for me. I will enjoy it. But we do that. And God, who's a loving father, knows what's best for us, far, far more than I, I do for my children. But God really does know what's best for us. And the things he says, don't do that. Don't watch this. Don't go there. Don't talk to that person. Whatever those don'ts are, so often we go, oh, but I wonder if it, it's right back to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Don't eat of that fruit. It's not going to be good for you. I wonder if. And all the world's problems really come from that point, don't they? Just that little inquisitive, well, do I really trust God? Maybe. And then off we go. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. The things that God asks us are not a problem. 2 John verse 6 says this, And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. It's just talking about walking by faith. That we walk after his commandments, the things that he's commanded to do, not to walk by sight by the things that we see, but just to walk in step with his Holy Spirit. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. (laughs) It's interesting, that, that phrase there, that you have heard from the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, from the beginning of the world, I'd argue. Right from the start. You know... Our relationship with God as a a race of people, as human beings, started by walking with God in the garden. There was nothing wrong, there was no sin, there was no sickness. It was wonderful. And ultimately we get to Revelation 22 and God's walk with man is resumed. In fact from 21 onwards we read in Revelation 21 and 22 that once again we'll walk with God. He will be our God, we'll be his people. But it's quite simple. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is love, that we walk after his commandments. If Eve had had just that, that love for God by realizing the wonderful world that had been created, by just who God was, would she really, if she had stopped to think about that, would she still have listened to the voice of the serpent? Would she still have stretched out her hand to take of that fruit? John fourteen thirty one says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, 
And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. You see, this is Jesus speaking about the fact that he loves the Father. And Jesus, of course, loves the Father with a perfect love. And how is that love demonstrated? That's exactly what Jared said earlier to us as well. Our love is demonstrated by obedience. By obedience to the commandments that God gives us. Love is seen in action. Just to say it, just to verbalize, God, I love you. We just sing all sorts of songs about our love for God. It's fine. But the real evidence, the real test, is when God calls you to obey a commandment that he gives you. I just saw this quote and I thought it was just quite a good place to end for this morning. God's love for us is uncoerced and so freely given that it does not demand a response. But so freely is it given that it creates freedom in the recipient so that our response is not one of obligation or duty nor the returning of a favour but uncoerced love. That's what it should be like. It shouldn't be a case of, oh, God wants me to do all of these things and I can't watch strictly now. And, you know, and this is not what I'm saying. We should love God so much that we want to put him first. Our love for God should be because of his great love for us. And if you leave here this morning and that you're feeling kind of challenged in certain areas and you're thinking, but I don't know whether I can give that up. You know what? Go back to step one. Focus on God's love for you. Because once you understand God's love for you, and what he's given for you, and what he's promised you, you know what? It's never a question of giving things up. It's just an issue of just putting some things aside that actually we don't need and won't help us. That's how we love God, by recognizing his incredible love for us. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for (laughs) your love for us, Lord. It just goes beyond anything that we can imagine. But Lord, we recognize too that you have called us to love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And Lord, help us today and in the days ahead, through this coming week, Lord, to really start to think about what that means and how we are to love you. For Lord, we recognize, as we'll look next week, that our love for each other will never be right until our love for you is right. And Lord, we want to love you. Lord, the Spirit really is willing, but the flesh is weak. Although often, Lord, the flesh seems to be very powerful. So Lord, give us victory, we pray, by your grace, by your Spirit working within us. Help us, Lord, to think to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Lord, and to think clearly about these things, that we choose willingly and with just delight in our hearts to go the way that you want us to go. Father, we thank you for this time. Just impress these things upon our hearts. Work, Lord, in each individual life here today, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.